As always, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning and to be able to celebrate Christ through song and to be able to study his word together. And we are actually in the last uh, message in the series, Kingdom Living Volume 2. Uh, we have spent quite a great deal of time uh, looking at Christ's Sermon on the Mount. We started, believe it or not, last fall. Uh, we worked through big part of it last fall, then took a Christmas break, and then after the first of the year, have been plugging our way through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we actually finished Christ's Sermon. Uh, he finished his, uh, we finished up with his last words last week. But this week, we're going to look at what, what Matthew does, and that is he gives us a couple of verses to sort of give us an expression or the feeling or, or the response of the crowd who listen to Christ. And much like we did at the very beginning, we started by looking at Matthew's introduction. And I, I like to think about the Sermon on the Mount and what Matthew does here as, as a great introduction to a book. You know, if, if you've ever, uh, went to buy a book, you look at the introduction, you say, is this something I'm going to get myself into? And then you can, of course, if you jump to the back, you can sort of get a feel for where it's going to be taking you. And Matthew does the same thing for us. Um, back in September, um, we looked at Matthew's words, Matthew 5, 1 and 2. It says, seeing the crowds, speaking of Jesus, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened up his mouth and taught them, saying, and you may recall, if you, were, if you were there back in the fall when we started this series, I said it's an interesting picture. Jesus goes up on the mountain, and it's more a hill than a mountain in our context, but, but in the context of the Holy Land, it's a mountain. And he, he goes up and he sits, and the disciples come around him. And some scholars really believe what happened was he called like the, 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 the disciples around him. And then the crowds sort of come in and they're eavesdropping on the teaching of Jesus. And we don't know if it was exactly like that or not, but, but what we know is he begins to teach. And really, when we started out, we said we're going to answer two questions in order to get us into the Sermon on the Mount. The first one was simple. What is the Sermon on the Mount? And over and over again, I've gone back to what John Stott, how he explains it, because I think he explains it so well. He wrote, the sermon is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and do. And so over and over again in the series, we've looked at the fact when people say, what does it mean to be a Christian? What, what, what are Christians to, to live like? I go, well, the Sermon on the Mount is a perfect place. It's all right there. Jesus gives us a picture of what a Christian is to be and do, what his followers are to be and do. The second is, how do we receive it? And we, we, we learned that we were to listen, but with a willingness to obey. And I believe that's, that's important, those two things together. We listen, but we listen with a willingness to obey as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just about intellectually knowing what Jesus said. It's knowing it in the sense of saying, now, Spirit of the living God, help me live according to this thing. Help me embody the Sermon on the Mount. So we began with this introduction to the series, and again, we're going to sort of conclude our series by looking at two last verses that Matthew gives us. But before we do, I, I want to say that, that over the, the past 2,000 years, many people have read the Sermon on the Mount, not just Christians, and have been amazed by it. Many people have done so. In fact, I, let me share with you a couple of statements uh, speaking of uh, Stanley Jones, who was a missionary, a theologian, and author, 
It said that a Hindu professor, a Hindu professor, once said to Stanley Jones, the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount and the cross I am drawn to. I want you to think about that for a minute. Similarly, a Muslim Sufi who was a, a teacher told Jones that he could not keep back tears when he read the Sermon on the Mount. And you can go story after story after story for the past 2,000 years when people have been engaged in the Sermon on the Mount, the reaction they have. And by and large, I think almost unanimously, almost, people would say after reading the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus was a strong moral teacher. Definitely a strong moral teacher. Even Gandhi once stated that the the Jesus of the Gospels and the Sermon on the Mount he was impressed with. It was Christians he had a hard time with. We could go a long ways on that one. But, but you, almost unanimously, you read the Sermon on the Mount, people say, no, that's a strong moral teacher. But the problem is Christ is so much more. See, here's the difficulty. The complication with these statements and thoughts of Christ is that it's impossible to set, separate Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus of the Scriptures as a whole. And Jesus is more than a moral teacher. He's the very Son of God, Savior of the world. The main question we're really confronted with by the Sermon on the Mount is not how much we we think of the sermon itself, but what really do we believe of the teacher? What do we believe of Jesus? This was the reaction of those who originally heard the Sermon on the Mount had to address themselves. They had to work through themselves. Here's the question. What will my response be to the Sermon on the Mount in Christ? In fact, I would ask you this morning, put that in the back of your mind. What is your response, not just to the Sermon on the Mount, but more importantly, Jesus? Let's look at the crowd's reaction. Matthew writes, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Why is the crowd so amazed? Well, let me, let me point out a couple of possibilities. First, the crowd, I believe, was amazed because of the content of Jesus' teaching. I think they were amazed at the content of Jesus' teaching. I propose that the crowd listening to the Sermon on the Mount did not expect what they heard. I think when they, when they came around Jesus and he began to teach, they didn't understand what Jesus was going to present, not just in the words of what his followers were to be and do, but in presenting them who he was. Even though in the Old Testament, the prophecies pointed to Christ coming as a descendant of David, a child of a virgin, the suffering servant, when Jesus shares the, 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 the cultural idea of the Christ who was to come was, was a different picture. It was, they believed he was going to come as a military ruler. But he was going to overthrow the Romans. And he was going to be a warrior king. Now, by the way, if we study scripture, we realize Jesus does return as the victorious warrior king. But Jesus came quite differently. Jesus does not teach rebellion against the people but a revolutionary counterculture to the words based on Christ's character, his love, his purpose, and his priorities. And I think they're amazed at his content. He doesn't speak against the Romans. In fact, he says this, love those who even hate you. 
His strength comes from this, this impeccable character that they had seen from no one in their entire life until they met Jesus. This is why by the end of the sermon, the crowd came away amazed and likely stunned. In the Sermon on the Mount, all the crowd had been wrongly taught, all they had falsely expected about the Christ and his kingdom had been clearly corrected. Like they're finally confronted with this understanding of what the Old Testament was truly speaking of when they spoke of the Christ, the Messiah. And I think they were amazed. Still today, when people are introduced to the Christ of scriptures, they often find that he's quite different than they've been told and expected. I don't know about you, but I've had many, many conversations over the years with people who have an image of who God is and who Jesus is. And, and oftentimes when I talk to them, they may even say something like this. Why would God ever want me? Do you know what I've done? Do you know, do you know who I am? I've had friends say, you know, I would, I, would, I would stop in the church, but the place would burn down. And I'm like, look, if you knew who was there and it hasn't burned down yet, it's still going to stand, you know? And of course, they're talking about a building. They're not understanding that the church isn't this anyway. It's us, right? But then you say, well, you know, it's interesting what the scripture says of Christ and who he said about him and what he says about himself. Jesus doesn't say I came for the perfect because there aren't any. Came for those who needed a physician. He says, I came to seek and save the lost. In fact, here's an interesting thing. I said, I often say in those conversations, you know what one of the big criticisms of Jesus was? He hung around tax collectors and sinners. By the way, isn't it interesting? Tax collectors, never been, never been really popular. But he hung around tax collectors. It's almost like they have their own category of sin, right? He hung around tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> I'm like, that's who Jesus is. And their mind's blown. That the God of the universe sent his one and only son so we could be in relationship with him. Instead of shying away from people like us, he embraced us. He sat with us, had a meal, loved us, and still does. So I think they were utterly amazed because of the content of Jesus' teaching. I think, secondly, the crowd was amazed by the manner of his teaching. It says, Jesus taught as one who had authority. Jesus didn't teach as their teachers of the law, the scribes. Jesus did not quote other authorities as the rabbis did. And that was a common teaching method then. They, they, would, they would make a statement, then they would say, like so-and-so, a popular, you know, a theologian of the day type of thing. You know, a popular uh, person who had respect of the, of the, of the multitudes. He didn't even say, thus saith the Lord, as the prophets did in the Old Testament. Over and over again, when we read the Old Testament, it's thus saith the Lord, because the prophets wanted us to understand they weren't speaking from their own mind. They were speaking from, from, from God's. Rather, he said what? Directly, I say to you. Jesus called people to be loyal to himself and declared that he would be their judge. Jesus spoke as one who knew what he was talking about. For instance, he said he knew who was great and who was least in the kingdom of God. He didn't guess. He didn't give a suggestion. He didn't say, this is what I think. He said, I know. He knew who would be blessed and who would not be blessed. He knew the way to life and the way to destruction. Now, let me be really clear. I don't believe that when the crowd, when the crowd heard Jesus proclaim 
that, that, and said that, look, he speaks differently than the teachers of the law, but they were necessarily being negative. Because I still speak in some ways like the scribe. I don't get up here and say, thus say Craig, because who cares? We're not here to hear what I think. You're not here to hear my opinion. You're here to hear the word of God. And so this is my authority. I don't have any authority except from the authority he gives me. Jesus was different. <laughs> he was the authority. As A.B. Bruce wrote, he said, the crowd is recognizing that teachers of the law spoke by authority while Jesus spoke with authority. In fact, Jesus, six times in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, truly, I tell you, truly, I tell you, Christ speaks as the authority. That was a different way to hear a message, right? And Jesus also spoke as the Christ, God incarnate, Savior, and Lord. That amazes all of us. Jesus insisted that he did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. I've had many people say to me, and, and I've certainly been there, I don't understand the Old Testament. You know, you read through it, and there's all these things, and, and how about the, why is there so many sacrifices? You know, wouldn't it be easier if there's just one, but there's so many, and they all point to Jesus. I tell people all the time, if you look to Jesus, you'll have a better understanding of the Old Testament. Like, he is the key. All things point to Jesus in the Old Testament. I mean, think about it. Even the commands speak to Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish these things. I've come to fulfill them. And he's the only one who could. You ever looked at all the laws and thought, who in the world can keep all those things? That's the point. We can't. Jesus did. <laughs> so if you know Jesus, and he's a fulfillment. Here, here's something important not to overlook. Jesus, in varying degrees in his sermon, teaches that he inaugurated the kingdom of God and had the authority to admit people into it and impart its blessing to them. I mean, that, that was revolutionary. That's why the religious leaders were so mad at Jesus, because they knew what he was saying. He was equating himself to God. Jesus makes it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that, that works or are mere lip service don't admit one into the kingdom of God and, and that the only, the only way that you can get in is by being genuinely devoted to him. And by the way, if you're a Christian fraud, that upsets you. I want to say it again. If you're a Christian fraud, that upsets you. If you're playing the game and think that you can fool everyone around you, maybe you can, but you can't fool God. That's bad news if you're a Christian fraud. It's great news if you're everybody else. Because what it means is, is, it's not by works, it's not what we try to earn that gets us into the kingdom of God. It's, it's not by the words we use. I've had many of people say, I, I can't pray because I don't know how to. Yeah, just speak the words you know. God isn't impressed by a great vocabulary, he's impressed with a true heart. And some of the most beautiful prayers I've ever heard are from those who who have not such a strong grasp of the, Christian, of the English language, which, by the way, I, I resonate with. But they truly love Jesus. And Jesus says, when everything's said and done, it's not the things you do, it's not the words you use, it's who you know, but allows you to spend eternity with him. And by the way, that eternity starts today. And on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a comprehensive doctrine of God. Interestingly, Jesus called God our Father. 
And that word father that he uses in the Lord's Prayer is Abba, which means daddy. It's intimate. It's relation. It's relationship oriented. Once he referred to the will of, of, of my or his father. Never did he include himself, however, with his disciples and speak of God as, as, as our father in the same sense. You go, what about when he taught him how to pray? He said, our father in heaven. He said, this way I pray. No, no, no. He was telling us how to pray. Jesus had a different relationship with the Father than we do. Ours is intimate, but Jesus is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. He said, explain the Trinity to me. I don't have enough time, and even if I did, I couldn't explain it the way it should be. But it's who God is. It's who God is. Here's the point. God was Jesus' Father in a sense altogether different than anyone else. Jesus taught that he was one with God. In the last beatitude, it's clear that Jesus expects his followers to have to, to suffer on his behalf, like the prophets of old suffered on behalf of God. And Jesus said, when you suffer, you'll suffer because of me. And the implication is so clear. Jesus not only likens himself to God, he says he is God. Here's another important teaching of Jesus in the sermon. Jesus regarded obeying him as Lord and doing the will of the Father as equivalent, equating himself with God. That's why when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you, you can't just say he was a moral teacher. He's more than that. He's so much more. Let me share one more teaching from the sermon to make the point that Jesus is the Christ was God incarnate, Savior and Lord. The Old, the Old Testament clearly teaches that God is judge. And yet Jesus clearly taught clearly taught in the Sermon on the Mount that he will judge, equating himself again with God. In a nutshell, Jesus is the Lord to be obeyed and the Savior granting blessing. And since Jesus claims to be the Christ, God incarnate, Savior and Lord, he can't be accepted as merely a moral teacher. And that was the dilemma of those who heard Jesus 2,000 years ago sitting on that mountain. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with him? Because if you believe he is Lord, you've got to do something different than if you believe he's something else. It was proposed by C.S. Lewis, popularized in his book, Mere Christianity, that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. This way of thinking has, has sort of falls to the wayside a little bit. Even apologists today use some different understandings. There's been some criticism. But I think Lewis is pretty awesome. And so I love the way he addresses this. And I think it's simple. And if nothing else, it brings us to an understanding we've got to make a decision. Lewis clearly writes that if Jesus knew that he was the son of God, but he was willing to lie about it, then this would only make him a liar. It would, make him, it would also make him a very evil man. If Jesus knowingly said, I'm the son of God and all these things, and he knew what he was lying, it would make him evil because he says he's the way to salvation. He's the way to life. And if he's a liar, we should have nothing to do with him. And by the way, if he's a liar, he can't be a moral teacher. He can't be a good teacher. And he certainly can't be a good man. Secondly, if Jesus sincerely believed that he was the son of God, but he was himself deceived so much that he was willing to die because of it, then he would be a lunatic. He'd be crazy. And dare I say, I mean, there's tons of crazy people. 
who believe something of themselves that isn't true. In fact, there's cults where people give their lives to such a person. And so it's possible that people would give their lives for a crazy person. People do that, unfortunately, more often than we would like to admit. But there's something different about the disciples. Something different about those who gave their life for Christ. And it's their testimony. What they say of Jesus is either extraordinary or utterly foolish, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church. Because Paul says, look, if we are living for Jesus and he didn't really rise from the dead, then our gospel is worth nothing. I had a friend one time say, listen, even if Jesus isn't Lord, being a Christian makes me a better person and that's worth it. You know what I think to that? Not at all. If there's no savior, I'm living for me. You say, well, that's selfish. No, there's no such thing as selfish if there's no truth. Why wouldn't you live for yourself? What's this? Don't you, I feel good when I do things for other people. I do in Christ. But you know what? Without Christ, I feel really good when I do things for me. How about you? No, I think there's more to it. I think when we look at the testimony of the disciples, it's quite extraordinary because they didn't just say that Jesus was God. They say that Jesus died on the cross and they saw the resurrected Savior. Here was a group of people that the night Jesus was taken into custody, they betrayed him. They ran away. In fact, one we believe was John. It says that they grabbed his cloak and he ran away practically naked. Now that's a scared person. But before we judge him, I think I could have been that scared too. Peter, who said, no, I'll die for you. Remember, he's out there and he denies him three times. In fact, he even curses to sort of say, I'm not one of his. These were the people before. Then Jesus is resurrected and they say, I'll die for that. Man, I'll die for God. We sit here today worshiping the Lord, certainly because we've walked with him and we've experienced the work of his spirit in our life, but we came to him purely on the testimony of people who knew who Jesus was. And they said he wasn't crazy, he was and is Lord. Think about it. If Jesus is who he claims to be, the son of the living God, therefore Lord, then we have quite a decision to make. What do we do with Jesus? As we look at the Sermon on the Mount and Christ himself, we need to respond with a sober seriousness when you think about it. We've looked at Christ's teaching of God's kingdom and we've, we've looked at his teaching on his Christian counterculture and the standards and the values and the priorities, but it really all boils down to who's Jesus. If we're in Christ, we don't serve him because we have to. We serve him because we love him. Come on, church. It's not a burden, it's a privilege. And we understand our journey isn't perfect. I say this all the time. I'm thankful I'm not what I used to be. I'm growing in Christ. I'm not perfect. I'm being perfected. But I know if the Lord lets me tarry, I have a lot more work he's going to do in through me. And and as much as I can get frustrated with myself, I understand that he is so pleased that I'm walking with him. 
in all my imperfections. He's not pleased with my imperfections. He's pleased that I walk with him in all my imperfections. And having him perfect me. How about you? And we do have a responsibility. John Stott writes, he says, only when the Christian community lives by Christ's manifesto will the world be attracted and God be glorified. Jesus prays this high priestly prayer before he heads to the cross. He says something quite remarkable. He says, the world will know why I have come because of their love for one another. The church, us, our community, is to be a place where wherever people come from, they can be felt welcome and loved and cared for. Not that we don't know what sin is, not that we don't help people head down the right road because we know you can't live in this habitual life of sin and reject God and be blessed, but, but, we, but we receive everyone just like Christ did who was said to have reclined at the table of, of tax collectors and sinners. And, and we don't walk around as if we're, we're better than anyone else because the only difference between us and them is we have Jesus. Big difference, by the way. But not that we can boast ourselves up and be proud. We boast in him. Amen, church? And it's a game changer when people really see that. And dare I say it's so often not seen. Oh, God, help us be that church. That people will see him in us. Living by the truth, by the way. Not perfect, but being perfected. Here's the question. What will your response be? Yes, to the Sermon on the Mount. But more importantly, to Jesus. When everything's said and done, how do we sum up the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount? In Christ's sermon, we're called to receive him as Lord and Savior. Enter into a genuine, life-saving relationship with him. And be part of the Christian counterculture. So here's a few questions. If you haven't already, will you receive Christ as Lord and Savior? Secondly, tied to it, will you enter into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ? And here's one for even those who have said yes to Jesus. If you're a Christian, will you refuse to go with the flow and be a part of the Christian counterculture? Will you allow the Spirit of God to take you to the place that only he can. Taking peace into chaos. Yes, loving our enemies. Sharing his word. Living like Jesus. Not out of guilt, but simply out of the joy of knowing him. Paul, Romans 12, it was read to us already in service. He says, in view of everything that we know about Christ, he's talking about all that's been written for 11 chapters in Romans. What response can we give? He says, I know. God, all that I am is yours. He says, that's the reasonable response. So we're going to do something a little awkward this morning. I just want to warn you ahead of time. I didn't tell you earlier because I 
wanted you to get to this point and feel guilty if you left. But all seriousness, we're going to do something that's a little awkward. Silence is awkward in our culture. 2022, you let a pause go for just a little bit. People get yancy. They start pulling out their cell phones and scrolling. I want us to be a little awkward this morning. In a moment, I'm just going to sit right there. The team behind me is going to be playing, but we're just going to be quiet. And I'm going to ask that you commit, maybe more time than you've committed to silence in a long time. Just commit some time to answer the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? If you've yet to receive him as Lord and Savior, what are you going to do with Jesus? I hope you'll choose to invite Jesus into your life. Receive him as Lord. It's a relationship you've been created for. And if you're a believer this morning, what are you going to do with Jesus? If we receive him, we walk with him. We, we engage in a Christian counterculture. We say, Lord, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're a little challenged. Okay, we're a whole lot challenged. But Lord, I know what you expect from me is just me. You meet me where I'm at, and with my imperfect self, you move me to a greater, greater image of you each and every day. So what are we going to do with Jesus? Take some time, consider it. Allow yourself to be quiet. Allow your heart to be still and respond to him. And when the awkwardness is super awkward, I'll close this in prayer. God, I, I thank you so much for just being able to, to gather here this morning or perhaps uh, watching online or maybe even watching throughout the week. And God, knowing that you love us so much that you allowed for your word to be recorded so that we could be drawn to you. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone in the sound of my voice who's yet to receive you as Lord and Savior, that perhaps now in the quietness of their heart, that's a decision they'll make. I made many years ago, Lord God, just thank you so much for dying for my sins, for being resurrected for my salvation, for dying for our sins, for being resurrected for our salvation. God, for the amazing life that we can have in you. We understand in this world we have trouble, we have trials, and, and yet, Lord God, we, we live every day knowing that there's a better place that you're preparing for us, that you promised to come back and take us home. 
You haven't left us. You've placed your very spirit in the life of those who follow you. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for everything we do, we do with you. It's not just for you, it's with you. And that you go before us and that you're the one that gives us the ability to take step after step. And many times you're the one carrying us. And Lord, for those who don't know you or just now entering into that relationship with you, a lot of that seems crazy and hard to understand. But for those of us who've walked with you for a while, we've experienced it. We've, we know your faithfulness. God, I pray that you would strengthen us, strengthen our understanding of your love for us because it's not guilt that'll drive us to, to live the Christian counterculture. It's not simply an intellectual understanding of what you write and what's been written in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in scripture. It's, it's knowing you and allowing your spirit to help the very word of God as we seek to master it, truly master us. And it's out of love. It's an understanding that we don't have to earn anything and couldn't earn anything, that you paid the the price in full so we could be in a right relationship with you. And that's not just something that we needed to enter into that relationship. It's something we need to grow in you and to, to become more and more like you. And so thank you for your profound love that you didn't just voice, but demonstrated on the cross and demonstrated through your resurrection and your ascension even the work right now you're doing on our behalf, interceding on our behalf before the Father, for preparing a place for us, promising to come back, for the gift of your spirit is, is, is an act of love. God, I pray that you would so fill us with an understanding of your love, but we can't contain it. That as you bless our gathering, that as we scatter throughout this region, region that we would be your church, sharing your love and in word and deed, and that others would know the joy we have in you. Help us encourage each other. Help us keep each other accountable. Help us love each other in a way that people would understand who you are. You're more than a moral teacher. You're more than a great teacher. You are Lord. And we give you the praise for all that you have done, all that you're doing, and all that you've yet to do. In Jesus' name, amen.